Hello, and welcome to The Goldmine, where you can find new investment insights from your favorite financial writers every day. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and this is Lessons Learned from Our Origin Story. I took my boss to lunch on the Wednesday before Friday the 13th. I was about to drop a bomb after the weekend, and I liked him enough to share some things I thought he should know, at least prior to, um, surprise, 20% of the firm's assets walking out the door with me and my crew on that coming Monday. Over a steak salad at the strip house, I explained why he needed to take control of the firm's future. His partner was just standing in the way of his success with too many examples to list. The biggest one, the portfolio, was in the green in 2008. That was a year the S&P 500 crashed 38%. And we were up until that other partner thought, hey, Wells Fargo looks cheap here and backed up the truck. What should have been a career-making year was instead proof that the firm lacked an investment process, had no internal controls, and no proper management. It was not the place where I wanted to build my career. So I felt comfortable being blunt, maybe even dangerously honest, because I knew my team had been busy the prior six months. Josh, Chris, Mike, and I had taken all the steps necessary to launch our WM. Our exit was still secret, but it was inevitable that we were going to go, and I wanted to leave on good terms. My then boss was a well-regarded technician, but his methodology incorporated both technicals, price action, relative strength, rate of change, and fundamentals, earnings, revenue, debt. He had developed a screening tool to apply this approach, and it generated a stock ranking system of all the publicly traded companies rated on a scale from zero to 100. My job was to run this division, help build out the software tool on the website, and attract institutional clients. I had a buddy who managed over $100 million for the Thundering Herd, and he loved this tool. He overlaid the rankings with his own firm's analyst research and their price targets. It was a list, and you could combine the two and come up with some results that were pretty impressive. It generated alpha of about 300 basis points annually, meaning three full percentage points above whatever the S&P 500 returns. I knew Bank America Merrill Lynch's CIO, and I showed her the real-life trading results we had, and, and her response was, wait, you, you can use our research to help make our clients more money? Let's get you on the platform. And, and to do that, as either a fund or a subscription, all it required was us putting together a comprehensive white paper. The way you would do these back-tested white papers is you'd hire some graduate student in finance and pay them $25,000 or $30,000, and a few months later, you would have a 20- or 30-page paper with all the appropriate tests and, and footnotes and everything like that. The potential upside was, I don't know, 100x, maybe even 500x. I was excited. My boss was excited right up until the part where his partner said, nope, we're not going to spend that money. It's a waste of time. And that was the last straw. It was probably one of many last straws. Less than a year after that experience, RWM launched. But I don't want to tell war stories. What I find fascinating is that when things go horribly wrong, there are things we can all learn from it. Failures can be much more instructive than successes because there's less of that element of random chance that, hey, you got lucky and things worked out. 
So there are lots and lots of lessons here. And the first observation was two partners with a 50-50 control. Hey, that's a dysfunctional firm that that you can't disagree on all of your decisions, big and small, and have a stalemate, especially in a dynamic and fast-moving industry like asset management. Stalemate, stasis, that's a death sentence. So rather than bore you with so many of those stories, I'd rather share some of the lessons I learned from that experience, and we applied those lessons to the launch of RWM. Starting with number one, capital required. You can get away with bootstrapping yourself on the cheap when you're a small startup, but at a certain point in your growth trajectory, it takes money to build a firm. We launched RWM with Josh and I supplying the initial capital. We funded growth by occasionally writing a check, but mostly by reinvesting profits in the firm as opposed to taking big profit distributions or large salaries. We just kept reinvesting in the firm. And yeah, it takes money, but we were fortunate to go into this with enough savings to make it work on our own. Do not underestimate how important those initial dollars are to getting off the ground. Office space costs money, lawyers cost money, computers cost money, everything costs money, and you have to have enough of it to make sure you're around long enough to keep your focus on the clients, the portfolios, the markets, running the business. If you're constantly raising operating expenses, if you're always stressed about cash flow, hey, you're just not going to have enough bandwidth to serve your clients properly. Number two, control. We never sold an interest to outside investors. We were founder-owned and managed from day one, and today we are partner and employee-owned. There are no third parties dictating terms to us. Nobody is saying to us, hey, you guys have to go out and sell some more high-commission variable annuities. That's not how we run the firm. We embraced a fiduciary standard, and we never looked back. I believe this philosophy is a core to Ritholtz Wealth Management, and I think it's incredibly valuable to our clients. I was surprised to learn in the middle of the pandemic of quite a few firms that had ceded control to outside investors. That led to layoffs and poor product offerings and just this sort of mad revenue-maximizing approach. I'd argue this came at the expense of client service and those fiduciary obligations. That's a core of my belief system. So while sufficient capital matters, it should not come at the expense of controlling your own destiny. Number three, ensemble advantages. Every one of us has a diverse work experience, different skill sets, different perspectives. Putting those to best use meant that as we grew, the founding team was able to each gravitate towards doing what we individually did best. We divided oversight and management, and that was a crucial step to improving our individual and collective professional performance. In fact, this approach has allowed us to focus on our strongest and highest value work. I've jokingly said, no one wants me managing payroll. Instead, we focus on what we do best, and that works out really well for the firm. In fact, the team approach means that you have to have faith in your partners and your employees. You have to be comfortable delegating authority to them, trusting their judgment. And what we do is give our people clear goals. We give them the tools to do their job and enough room, enough space to pursue those objectives as they think best. We don't micromanage people. 
here's your goal, here's our metrics for measuring them, here's what you, the tools you need to do it, now go do it and update us on a regular basis. This has become a core strength of the firm. And the net result is each of us is more productive, more creative, and, and to be blunt, more valuable to the firm. Number four, press your advantages. During the post-Great Financial Crisis era, it was clear that prospective clients were A, unhappy with their existing brokers or advisors, B, finding us on their own through our own footprint, and C, asking us to help on issues we had shown some expertise in. These were a powerful force leading us to a deeper understanding about what the RI world should look like, how it should work. And what we had to do to help nudge it in that direction. Those three steps I described, we we found countless ways that they were uniquely advantageous to us. And we continued to tack into what was working. Yeah, we tried a lot of things that were new and different and some were innovative, some worked, some didn't. Some things were adjacent to our expertise. And again, it's hit or miss. Some of it worked. But our moat, for lack of a better word, was contained within that three-step model, and we continually press that advantage. And number five, you have to be willing to fail. If you're not failing, you're not taking chances. You're not experimenting or innovating or venturing outside of your comfort zone. There are a lot of firms that can get away with this for years, but eventually a newer entrant is going to come in and eat their lunch. You have to adapt. You have to change your mind and be willing to admit error and reverse yourself. I think the key to this is quantifying the metrics of success or failure. You have to understand what the costs are involved and how much you're willing to lose on any new experiment you try. And you create that stop loss. That's where you declare, hey, we were wrong. This isn't working. The experiment is over. And then you move on. You know, the reason we have to do this is faster, cheaper, smarter, better, eventually comes to every business model. And you may not be driving towards those qualities, but someone else is. And eventually, they're going to take your market share. This past week was the eighth anniversary of RWM's launch. This is a time of year I usually start thinking about the circumstances surrounding our beginning, and and that's what led me to this post We were pretty lucky in terms of timing within the market cycle. You know, the reputation we had built before and after the great financial crisis certainly didn't hurt us. How we exited the firm by not burning bridges on the way out was also something smart. When I was younger, I would always leave in a flame of glory. And, you know, you grow up, you mature, you learn some things, and you learn how to exit in a way that is positive and you can continue at least having a a decent professional relationship with the people you used to work with. And I I can't tell you how both when I left Maxim and when I left Fusion, that polite, pleasant handshake exit was really worthwhile. There are probably dozens of other lessons I could write up on this as well, but these are the five that really stand out. And mostly, I'm, I'm just filled with gratitude for, for this team that we've put together, for my partners and our clients. We, we have a lot more building to come in the next decade or more. I'm very excited about the future we're creating. For more from me about finance, RWM, and pretty much everything else, check out the big picture at Ritholtz.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today. Stop.